0: Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library Podcast. Are you a library enthusiast who loves hearing about new ideas and the inner workings of the profession? Today, we'll hear from the President-elect of the American Library Association about her platform and vision. So stick around. This should be fun.
1: Hey, San Diego. It's Trevor from Listener's Advisory, And I strongly advise you to listen to this next interview. Why? Well, I'm going to assume if you listen to this podcast, you're at least somewhat interested in public libraries. And I sat down with the president-elect of the American Library Association, Emily Drabinski. Speaking with Emily felt like the opposite of small talk. Powerful ideas, current events, history and ideologies, politics, and political economy. Really big picture thinking that's refreshing and very timely. But first, for those who don't know, what is the American Library Association? Going to their website and taking them at their word, their stated mission is to, quote, provide leadership for the development, promotion, and improvement of library information services and the profession of librarianship in order to enhance learning and ensure access to information for all, end quote. Their motto, the best reading for the largest number at the least cost. So, at the risk of expressing an opinion, I'll say Emily Drabinski, at the helm of America's largest library association, is a big deal. It's a chance to reprioritize things and reimagine possibilities. Let us know what you think of some of the topics discussed and how it affects your local library. And please, I hope you enjoy this interview. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Listener's Advisory. Uh, My name is Trevor Jones. I'm the branch manager of the College Rolando Branch Library with San Diego Public Library and joining me today is new president-elect of the American Library Association, Emily Drabinski. I am so honored to have her on the show today. Uh, Emily, hi, how's it going?
2: It's great, super sunny day here in New York City. Really glad to be on the show, Trevor, thank you. Uh,
1: Well, again, thanks for coming. This is exciting. Now I understand we're the uh, first interview with you after the election, so congratulations. Yeah, thank you, I'm thrilled. I'm just gonna take some time to kind of find out more about your vision of things to come and just library issues at hand. Uh, what folks should be talking about or or maybe what they want to hear more about from you. Mm -hmm. Just setting things up again for more of our general listeners. I know Mm -hmm. folks in library land may know your name. What what exactly are your duties now as the president-elect?
2: Sure. So I've been elected and I will take office as president-elect of the American Library Association at the conclusion of the ALA annual meeting uh, at the end of June. So it will really sort of kick into gear at the beginning of July, I'll spend a year as president elect, and that's a lot of planning. So I'll be pulling people together for my sort of presidential year, getting my comrades set up for who I want to be sort of working with me in that year and getting to know the ropes of the association, I guess, and learning more about what everybody's doing. Uh, And then I will be president the following year. So 2023, 2024. And everybody's telling me it's a whirlwind, but I think it's a lot of talking to librarians and library workers and people who care about libraries, which is sort of everybody or it should be. Uh, And then I'll spend a year as past president, which has its own set of duties. But so it's really, I'm looking at it as like a three-year term uh, that begins July 1, where I will, I don't know, be president of the ALA or part of the team.
1: Um, So this one's like a super broad one, take it any direction you want. But again, just kind of setting things up for folks that that may not know or they hear some. I mean, if if larger media doesn't focus on this, but it certainly uh, folks in libraries talk about it. What are some of the biggest issues facing libraries today, but especially public libraries, in your opinion?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I ran my campaign on a platform that really centered library workers and the importance of making sure that library workers have uh, the tools they need to do the work that they do. Um, I've been an academic librarian for the vast majority of my career. So I don't have a whole, you know, I'd have to hear from you what the big issues were in your public libraries. And I do think that most of us have, you know, most of the issues that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis are really local, right? So in my library, we're very concerned right now about getting technology that's up to date for our uh, staff and for the patrons and dealing with supply chain issues. So that's like a big issue for us. Uh, Faculty governance is a big issue for us. So, you know, I think to the extent that, none of us can know everything, I'd say that I would want to hear from you what the issues are in San Diego. I think overall, we are all sort of struggling with the impacts of decades of disinvestment in public institutions, in public education, in public parks, in the postal service, and in our public libraries. You know, in a shift to thinking about public goods as revenue generating, as entities that have have to prove their value, that need to be worth it, right? When I think a lot of us got into libraries or who work in libraries, see them as as things that are better than the alternative, right? Like it's better to take up public space with a library than take up public space with with an Amazon delivery warehouse, right? And so I think that if I had to pick an umbrella issue, it would be that all of us are suffering from disinvestment in the things that we care about and value. And workers have a diminishing. Have diminishing control over their wages and working conditions. And I think those are the issues that I see as most crucial to talk about while I'm uh, ALA president. Not that I can solve the problem of neoliberalism, but I think making sure that we're talking about it in public ways really loudly is uh, crucial to my sort of plans.
1: You know, absolutely. And I I don't want to step in too much, but it's almost like it's a chance to take that more macro, decades long view as opposed to sometimes we are just inundated with like thinking about next quarter because that's mm-hmm. what spreadsheets say we have to do or we're talking about next fiscal year and it's like can we can we take a step back and really look at the field and american society in a in a larger sense
2: absolutely because if i'm just looking a quarter ahead i'm only looking a quarter behind for explanations to the problems i'm facing and so like a lot of us sort of dealt with like a lot of library workers, COVID hits, and all of a sudden, I'm a frontline worker dedicated to distributing, you know, COVID tests and COVID vaccines. And like, I'm the only functional node of circulation left in society. So I've got to do everything from making sure that students have the books they need for school, to making sure that they don't die from COVID. And like, I'm just trying to go to work every day. And I'm a person with a family also. And so if we just look a quarterback, we can blame maybe the immediate boss, or we can point the finger at like who came before us in this job. And the problems are much bigger and broader than that. And I mm-hmm. think it's going to be really important for us to tie the sort of everyday problems that we're facing in our own workplaces deserve bigger social and economic and cultural factors that have left us abandoned us to these really terrible choices to either give all of ourselves to our work in such a way that the person that needs needs narcan in our library gets it and trying to preserve our own sense of dignity and self-worth and you know so that like that's the tension so i think a broader view is 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 really crucial if we're going to fight the sort of size of fight i think we need to be fighting right now
1: that's great. I love it. Well, let, let's keep going. Let's. There's so many threads there. So I'm going to pick mm-hmm. them up and we it's keep great. going. And, you know, folks, um, Google your name and some of the campaign uh, and even prior to the campaign. So you frequently reference the phrase library workers. Can you talk mm-hmm. about why this language in particular is so important for building solidarity?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the there are lots and lots of debates about the value of the MLS and the sort of need for professional status in libraries. And I think, you know, I've written a little about that. I think in feminized professions, in feminized fields like teaching, nursing, social work, libraries, professionalization is part of how you make claims for more resources, right? So I have the MLS, I'm degreed and I'm professional and therefore I'm worth more money. And so you have to pay me more money. And that's like, that's not wholly unreasonable, right? We think about all the different strategies we use to get sort of pieces of the pie as workers and professionalizing is one of those things, but also has this double effect where it produces inequality in our workplaces. So I have librarians and then I have staff who make half of what librarians make, often doing very similar work, right? Or, you know, and that is not, cool <laughs> you know like that's my my big political analysis right that's that leads to lots of like damage right it both it depresses wages for library staff and it produces these conflicts when really all of us are in it together like all of us you know if we are all in the library because we want to have do meaningful work that contributes to the life of our communities while also sustaining our own lives we have to remedy that So it's not like saying library workers does anything automatically to remedy that, but it is a reminder that everybody's working in the library and that if we want to win, you know, and we can talk more if you want to about what I think a win is. If we want to win, we're going to need everybody in and that means that everybody has to sort of see themselves in each other and be in solidarity with one another. And it's going to mean that we have to put all of our attention towards raising the wages of those making the least Cause that's the only way that we're, you know, that we're going to have any integrity as sort of a, a movement of library workers seeking a sort of a
1: better world. Absolutely. And, you know, to piggyback on that, I don't think it's controversial to say in my experience, I think most people would agree you work in public libraries for so long. Mm-hmm. You'll notice the paraprofessional staff are usually overwhelmingly people of color. Mm-hmm. they are people that are local. Like when I worked in the Bronx, I worked with paraprofessionals that were from the Bronx and yeah. that job. Was the best job that they were gonna get in that area. Mm-hmm. But then the professional staff, the librarians, tended to be white, you know, I'm not saying mm-hmm. with their exceptions, of course, and tended to be pretty geographically mobile, like the type of folks you know, I mean, I wasn't from New York. I had moved to New York. I was going to, I was getting my MLS at mm-hmm. uh, CUNY, Queens. Okay. And uh like all the other. MLS kids, I call them kids. We were all 20 somethings for New York Public Library. Uh, we were all white and all the paraprofessional yeah. staff were, were black and Dominican and Puerto Rican. And you go to any other major city in America and I I think you'll find that pattern. So uh, yeah, library workers just kind of gets around that.
2: Yeah. And we got to bring a class analysis to the work that we do. you know and there's all kinds of conversation in the field right now about diversity equity and inclusion that's been super valuable and super informative and that's really made a lot of change possible. But I think it is difficult when you work in New York City, right <laughs> that like, there's plenty of racial diversity in my library, you know, Um, the division, the class divisions are, are uh, equally severe. And so we need to be able to talk about intersecting systems of oppression. So that's race and gender, and it has to include class. And I feel like that's the piece that, you know, we shy away from a little bit and, you know, it's hard to talk about and it isn't, it's political, you know, in a way that I think most of us have sort of, Come around to the idea that eradicating racism is not like a left-right, yeah, you know, politicized conflict. It's just like you know something that we have to do as uh, people who want justice in the world, and, and class has to be one of those vectors of analysis too.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I, it's like folks aren't there yet, but I think I think rhetoric and and kind of the public sphere is is changing. I, I think mean,
2: people, yeah, people need the language, you know, and so when you have. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in office, and she's demonized by the by the right, which really just amplifies her message. And she's talking really clearly about taxation as crucial to income distribution that makes sense. You know, that's like, we're able to talk about that in large part because of people like her.
1: Absolutely. Well, um, and just to keep going on that theme before we So you had mentioned this term earlier, and maybe we can like expand on it as far as changing the language and the conversation people talk about libraries. People might say libraries are institutions that allow communities to pool their resources to share things in common. Can you talk a little bit about this term neoliberalism for folks who maybe they've seen it, but they don't really know what that refers to? And how has it changed the concept of public libraries?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I'm like everybody. I have to Google neoliberalism and read the Wikipedia entry every time I use the term. One of the characteristics is uh, a demand that everything turn a profit or be revenue generating. And so you could imagine a world where we valued public libraries the way we value like public playgrounds, you know, which are, I'm sure, just as political as, as libraries and probably under attack in the same ways, but, I, but that's not my field. So I don't really know. But like, we don't ask of the slide at the park, at playground, if it can it provide evidence that it gives our children a good time, right? We're not like- the
1: data on that slide? What's the, the data
2: box? on this slide? Like, how do we know it's doing its job? Like, we don't ask that because we know that kids like going down slides and that we, if we have slides, all the kids can, can have a good time at the playground and all of us have kids or no kids or have been kids. So we want that and we all agree. And so that's like, I would like other- public and social goods to sit in the sort of playground category of things that we value because they are valuable, because it is good to have a library. It is good to have, it is good to pool resources, to use them to purchase collections that meet the needs and interests of our communities and to enable that kind of access for everybody, you know, and that's you know, we've obviously never had libraries that work like that, but that's the ideal, right? And we would want to be working towards that, libraries that work for everybody. But neoliberalism will say, what is the value of that? What's the innovative partnership here? Can I see how this expands access to the capitalist state, right? Like what can the library do for workforce development? Which is not to say that people don't need to be engaged in ways that make it possible for them to have livelihoods, but like the the reduction of sort of everything in the, in the social world to the sort of needs of capital. And you, you feel that, right? Like your library is offering lots and lots of trainings on how to manage your money and how to be an entrepreneur and almost no trainings on how to organize your workplace and form a union. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine a library that provided that kind of programming, but under a neoliberalism, it's sort of, it's impossible. You know, it, would, it just it's difficult to even imagine. Although yep. so I just said it and you're like, well, maybe we could do that, right?
1: I don't know, maybe we could do that. Yeah, uh, I'm already thinking about it now that you mentioned it.
0: Yeah. That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guest, Emily Drabinski. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday, June 15th, for part two of this conversation. As usual, thanks to Pete Meisner and Luke Henshaw for contributing original music, and a huge thank you to Kelly Peppo. Kelly's been heading up SDPL's massive effort to hire new clerical staff so that we can get our library system fully reopened. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, visit us at sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast. This podcast is supported by the Library Foundation SD. For more information on the good work they're doing, visit libraryfoundationsd.org. If you like what we're doing here at Listener's Advisory, please consider sharing our podcast on your social media, leave us a rating or review via your favorite podcast directory, or tell someone you know about us. Thanks in advance.